Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, and welcome to this American Enterprise Institute event on the Electoral Count Act. I'm Kevin Kosar, a resident scholar at AEI, and I'll be your host this morning. Let me give you a roadmap of how our program will proceed over the next hour. First, I'll say a few words about why we are having this program. Second, I will introduce our three panelists, and the four of us will converse until about 10.45 a.m. With that, let me move us along to our program. The Electoral Count Act, or ECA, was enacted in 1887. Late last year, the ECA burst into the headlines. Some Republicans began saying that this statute empowered Congress to not only object to the electoral slates of some states, but also to reject them, which could prevent a presidential candidate from reaching the 270 votes needed to be officially deemed the winner. Under this scenario, the decision of who gets to be president would be made by the House of Representatives instead of the public assembled through the states. To be clear, January 2021 was not the first time legislators had objected to states' electoral slates. For example, in January 2005, Senator Barbara Boxer, Democrat of California, delayed Congress's electoral ballot count by objecting to Ohio's slate. She and Ohio Representative Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, also a Democrat, alleged that Ohio's voting machines have been corrupted by operatives for President George W. Bush's campaign. Their objections did not go far, not least because the defeated Democratic presidential candidate, Senator John Kerry, did not support the effort to challenge the Ohio results. January 6, 2021 was very different, as it involved objections lodged to multiple state slates by many GOP legislators, and it was done at the behest of President Trump. Mr. Trump, who had been relentlessly denouncing the election results as fraudulent, also encouraged Vice President Mike Pence, who presides over the counting, to refuse to count the votes of certain states. In Trump's words, he told Pence simply to send them back. Having our national legislature throw out the votes of millions of Americans based on allegations that failed to hold up in court seems beyond problematic, which is why we're here today to discuss the Electoral Count Act. I don't think anyone would want to see a repeat of January 6, 2021. And it would seem to me that conservatives should be particularly motivated to find a way to improve the ECA. Why? Well, obviously, because a Democrat, Vice President Kamala Harris, will be presiding over the electoral count in January 2025. Now, let me introduce our three expert panelists, and then we'll begin the discussion. John Fortier is a resident scholar here at AEI. He's the author of three books, two of which are about elections. One is titled After the People Vote, A Guide to the Electoral College, and the other is titled Absentee and Early Voting, Trends, Promises, and Perils. Our second panelist is Andrew McCarthy, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. He's also a contributing editor at National Review Magazine. He's the author of the book, All of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency, and he's written excellent columns on the Electoral Count Act for NR. Our third panelist is Matthew Seligman, a special counsel at the Campaign Legal Center, where he studies the Electoral College and the Electoral Count Act. 
Fortuitously, last autumn, he taught a seminar at Harvard Law School on disputed presidential elections. He previously served as a visiting assistant professor of law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law and as a Clemenco Fellow and Lecturer on Law at Harvard University. So let's begin the conversation with the panelists. I want to put my first question to John Fortier about this law, the Electoral Count Act. Set the stage for us, John. What does this law say and why did Congress go about enacting it? Thanks, Kevin. First, as you alluded to, the idea that we're talking about the Electoral Count Act means that we've had some presidential election disputes. Usually this act operates very much in the background and is not known to most Americans. It goes back to 1887. And I guess I would say even further, really coming out of the 1876 election. And if you worry about our current election disputes, which I think there is some reason to, that was, was arguably the worst election dispute that we had in our history, where we went up all the way to Inauguration Day, just before it, which was then in March, where we didn't have a, a president. And there were great disputes within Congress, a divided Congress, about how to count these electoral votes. There were multiple slates of electors coming from states that had almost multiple governments. And you know, it was a, it was a mess, and really the closest we came to a, a very very serious electoral crisis. It took a long time to try to figure out what to do about this, whether a law could be enacted uh, that would try to solve some of these thornier issues. Uh, and in 1887, we passed such a law. It does many things. I mean, we, we've had pre we had previous laws which which dealt with some of the issues. I mean, it sets the dates of when the electoral college meets and and when Congress is counting the votes. But I think the most controversial parts, the parts we're arguing about, are those that try to lay out some decision rules for Congress. What would Congress do when it's faced with difficult issues such as two slates of electors? Or could they possibly throw out a slate of electors and object to one? And even what was properly done in the states, whether states or perhaps state legislatures have appointed slates of electors, what to do with them. So uh, again, this is a law that tries to lay out some of the details. I, you know, I'll save my recommendations for, for a later comment, but I guess I would say the, the issues that we really do need to think about are, are laid out in the Constitution in a very broad way. What's the role of the states and how seriously do we take that the states resolve their elections? And I guess I think broadly speaking that they are, they are the ones who are making those decisions and, and selecting the electors. And then Congress, what it does does it have any role? Does the vice president have any role when it counts the electors? What about certain problems that come about? And what happens if there is a, a deadlock? That's the law that tries to deal with these issues. And from all the debate, you see that you know, it has not perfectly dealt with all the issues. And I think also it probably is hard to get an act that will deal with, with each of these issues in, in a perfect way. Thank you, John. Next question I want to pose to Andy McCarthy. The ECA, it was developed over a 10-year period by Congress. And it was an apparently well-intended effort to solve a problem. They didn't want to see a repeat of the Hayes-Tilden nightmare. Yet, here we are. From your perspective, what are the shortcomings of the statute? I really think that we have more of a problem with bad behavior than we do with legal architecture. I think if you take the long view, the statute's actually been pretty successful. It's faded to the background, as John just pointed out, most of the time. We've had a few isolated disputes, but we haven't had any elections that didn't turn out properly because of the statute. And 
I really think the the main problem we have with our elections is not something that can necessarily be addressed with a statute. It's more what is the proper role of the states in the elections and the federal government. So I think, you know, there was an assumption, which was a very surprising one coming from Republicans, or at least some uh, Republicans, mainly Trump supporters, going into the January 6th conference that the federal government had a substantive role in second guessing the results in the states, notwithstanding that the statute actually provides for a presumption that the federal government is supposed to honor as long as the states have certified their votes by a certain fairly early period of time. That seemed to me to have been ignored, and that's a pretty clear provision of the law. And the wayward assumption, which I don't think the the law entertains, was that there were grounds to object to electors other than the question whether they were properly certified and regularly giving their votes. So I, I, I would be hesitant to do anything more than perhaps tinkering with this law, because I, I, I frankly, I'm, I'm, uh, given the fact that there's currently an attack on the way that we conduct elections in the first place, in particular, a drive to try to award the election to the winner of the popular vote, which would be a radical departure from the way our elections are structured under the Constitution, I would be wary of changing a law that I think has worked fairly successfully for the uh, the century plus that that we've been dealing with it, and open and potentially open a can of worms that takes us far apart from what the constitutional structure of our elections is. Thank you, Andy. If I can just follow up, and maybe I'll kick this one question over to John. Any reference that Congress's role involves uh, taking slates of electors that are su- submitted. Uh, in an appropriate manner, certified. The Electoral Count Act was created in part because there was confusion about what were the correct slates in the uh, the, the Hayes-Tilden race. Was that not was that not correct? That there were multiple slates submitted or something like that? Is, is that for me? So, um, oh, yes, John. Uh, yes. Um, in fact, uh, we we had four states where at least some of the electors were disputed. There were two different slates, or in one case, a single elector, but, and really, I mean, the, the problem was deeper in the sense that coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction, we almost had two governments operating in some of these Southern states that sent Republican and Democratic electors. And I think if you look at the problem, I think Andy's right that that we need actors, good faith actors in all the parts of the process here. But you, if you're counting, I think Congress has a role to count the electors, uh, to be their counting process. Almost always, that's supposed to be a very simple process. You just count them up and get the right number. But there are these occasional questions of what do you do? And what do you do when it's a little unclear which thing to count, which slate of elector to count? And there, you know, Congress deadlocked in 1876. And the law tries to give some ways to resolve that. I'm, at the end of the day, a little skeptical that Congress can bind itself in a very, very formal way, always for the future, and tell Congress what answer to come to. But the other, the other part of the answer is Congress should almost never have to exercise discretion. But you know, two slates of electors is one 
case where it's going to have to do something. It's going to have to figure out which which set to count. And the act tries to, to give some guidelines, I would say, or maybe even some absolute decisions that Congress has to take to answer that question of which is the right slate of electors. So yes, it was you know of central importance in 1876. And that's what the act, one of the things the act tried to, to clarify. Right. 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 Yes. My right. own reading of the history was that there'd been, uh, you know, this confounding situation where you had two sets of people coming from the same state, four different states, and all saying, no, no, our slate is actually the right slate, which put Congress in the position of trying to figure out which ones to count. Let me toggle over to uh, Matthew for my next question. When you looked at Electoral Count Act, what do you think are its problematic portions? Or do you think it's fundamentally sound? I mean, I think there are significant problems with the act as written. And, you know, with respect to Andy, it's absolutely true that over the history of 130 years, it's almost always gone very smoothly. But I think the events of the last year have shown that there are significant problems with the law as it exists right now. And so the first problem is just that it's extremely unclear and convoluted. And in the stakes of a disputed presidential election, they're so high that clarity and certainty in the law is critically important. And we saw some of the price of that lack of clarity this year because there were contending views about the role of the vice president and what authority he might have and what sorts of objections might be raised. So I think that if nothing else, modernizing the statute so it speaks in clear 21st century legal language, I think is really important. Now, beyond that, I think there's some substantive problems as well. As the other panelists have noted, you know, there's a fundamental question about what the role of Congress should be in resolving a dispute about a presidential election. And over our history, we've now arrived at a situation where states are capable of conducting recounts and disputes resolution procedures. And courts, of course, are involved as well. There were over 60 lawsuits that were filed over this election. And so what that history shows, I think, is that courts and states are the appropriate venue for resolving ordinary election dispute. Now, the problem with the statute as it's written is that there's supposed to be this deference towards the resolution of election disputes as courts and states have resolved them, but there's no enforcement mechanism. And we saw that supposed presumption just tossed out the window this year. So I think modernizing the act to provide some sort of enforcement mechanism that says what sorts of objections are inbounds and out of bounds, and then enforcing the deference that's supposed to already be there to states and court decisions, I think would be a significant improvement. Oh, excellent. Another question for John. Some months ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an uh, opinion piece by two legal experts who suggested that the Electoral College Act should be largely jettisoned so that disputes about the validity of electoral slates would be decided by the courts. Just keep Congress out of it. What do you think of this proposal, or does Congress have a role to play in deciding the validity of states' electoral slates? Yeah, I think it's a, we, have a, we have a number of actors here, and it's tricky to lay out exactly what their roles are, and I think it's even more difficult to force them to follow those roles in every case. You know, I'd start with the states being responsible for, for the elections and having and getting to a result. Again, I think that's a that's a bedrock principle that, that almost all of the time we should have the states running their elections and getting to their results. I will say well, the reason I say almost is because sometimes we have could have some bad actors there. We could have some possibilities there where there is also this question of do the state legislatures have 
a, a separate power to, to actually determine their elections. They do, in a sense, they could appoint their electors directly. Today, all states have enacted election laws, election codes. And for that reason, I think almost always, again, we're going to follow those laws and therefore courts, like Matt, Matthew suggested, are going to, state courts, sometimes federal courts, are going to say something about those laws. And, and we're going to get to some sort of legal resolution of the of the case. I, I don't want to open up this uh, Pandora's box in almost any case, but you know, there is a question if if there were bad actors in the state, if the state legislature wanted to come back in and say, you know, you've really been distorting the law, you know, the court has entertained that in certain ways or certain parts of the court, changes to the election code made by other actors. So that's that's a tricky set of issues. And so courts and the final decision of the state are involved, but at the end of the day, is there some opening for someone else to say, you know, maybe in the in the most extreme circumstances that that you could see this case where a state legislature would step in or our court in another way saying that, that actors, you know, executive actors aren't doing well. And then secondly, you go to the counting of the vote by Congress. I think it is almost always a kind of ministerial act. They just count up what's in front of them. But you know, one thing I can point people to that I thought was helpful is Mike, uh, Mike Lee's, Senator Mike Lee's uh, speech at the, when, the, when we returned to the counting on January 6th. And I think it was somewhat off the cuff, but it was really... I think laying out that, you know, again, mostly we're doing Congress is just counting the votes, but there are some very tricky scenarios where counting means figuring out you know, which slate of electors to count or, you know, in 1968, election 1969, when, when Congress objected, what to do about some issues with those electors themselves, faithless electors, that, that might be a role for Congress to play. So I, that's a long way of saying, I think courts will have roles in this significantly, I think, especially in the re resolution of the election in the state courts and, and getting to the final result. I don't think the answer probably is, though, that Congress is going to, in a very extreme circumstance, abdicate all its responsibility and say, I'm just following this law. I'm going to de defer to the Supreme Court, which swoops in at the end and decides the election. I think Congress does have some power there. And it's dangerous in many ways, although it's perhaps a corrective to other dangerous actors uh, in other cases. And so we could be talking about this horrible scenario we're thinking about here, Congress overstepping. And the next election, we'd be worrying about you know, a governor overstepping or a court overstepping in a way. So I don't think it's easily resolved other than to say almost all of the time the state should resolve and almost all of the time Congress should count things you know, as they are in front of them and not go behind those state results. But there are these tricky cases, which I think are not easily resolved. Great, thank you, John. I want to follow up with Andy. I'm recalling a couple of great columns you wrote at the beginning of this year as this debate over Congress's role in uh, in the election was was percolating. One thing you flagged was the fact that there were both members of Congress and members of the media saying that it was the role of Congress to certify states' votes, and you said that was just wrong. I wonder if you could comment on that point. Yeah, I think that there's been, because this is a, a line that's been repeated again and again, and it, it underscores that we have, I think, a basic misunderstanding, particularly in quadrants in Washington, about what is supposed to happen in that proceeding on January 6th. Under our system, the states are sovereign with respect to the conduct of their elections and the certification of their votes. It's the states that certify their electoral votes. 
And Congress doesn't have, Congress in conjunction with the vice president, to my mind, doesn't have anything other than a ministerial role of counting the votes. Now, yes, there are these quirky situations that have come up once in a blue moon where, for example, I guess it, it was it Hawaii in the 1960 election where they had a recount and it looked like Nixon won. And then it turned out that on the recount, they thought Kennedy won. And it turned out that the state actually certified two slates of electors and Congress had to make a decision about which one to count. But those are uh, those are historically very unusual. And I think that the state of this law for all of its imperfections, which I quite agree with Matthew that the this is not a model of clarity the way this is this is drafted. But at the same time, I guess two points. Number one, no matter how perfectly you write a statute, you can't stop people from raising specious legal objections. It's the same thing in court litigation. Yes, people made this claim going into this election that the vice president had the power not to count electoral votes. But that was overwhelmingly rejected by the consensus of opinion. And I think most people would say it's a frivolous position that was invented for political purposes and doesn't have any legal standing. I don't think you could prevent that kind of claim from being made, no matter how well you wrote the statute. In the meantime, this provision for all of its imperfections can be read to say that as long as the state by its own processes with the governor's certification has certified a single slate of electors, then there is no valid congressional objection on January 6th to those electors. And the only role that Congress has is to count the votes because in our system, it's the states that run the election and Washington does not have the power to second guess the state's results and is only resorted to under circumstances where either the state has caused some confusion about what its slate is, or we have the historically unusual but not uh, unprecedented situation where we don't have anyone who gets a majority. What I worry about, again, is if you try to, to perfect this, you may open cans of worms that we currently don't have Whereas in the current situation, it's kind of like trials that I've had. If you have a lawyer representing someone who tries to turn the trial into a zoo, um, the trial is going to look ugly. But most of the time it comes out all right because the, the legal architecture, while not perfect, can control the situation. And I think that's really what the story of the 2020 election is. Ultimately, it turned out the way that it was supposed to turn out. Thank you. Let me pitch to you, Matthew, the question I threw out a little bit ago, which was the Electoral Count Act, you know, as importantly noted, if people just ignore the text of a law, they're going to ignore the text of the law and rewriting the law is not going to make them, you know, behave any differently necessarily. That said, what do you think about the ECA? Should it be, you know, gotten rid of largely, as was suggested in the Wall Street Journal column, or do you think it should be rewritten and clarified and maybe even expanded? Uh, so I think we share a common diagnosis of what the problems are and the way this ought to work. And there's differing prescriptions for this. So the Wall Street Journal opinion piece suggested that, well, the way to 
get the appropriate decision decision making deference to states is to abolish the ECA. And Andy is suggesting that, you know, this has worked well enough for 130 years, so let's not rock the boat. I think that that modernizing and amending the ECA is the way to go. And to see why I disagree with, for example, abolishing the ECA, it's it's oddly ahistorical because of course abolishing the ECA would put us back into the pre-1887 status quo. And of course, that's exactly what gave rise to the crisis of 1876. And, you know, for those who are historically interested, you know, 2021 was a big problem, but 1876 was vastly worse. So I think it's, you know, abolishing the ECA doesn't change the fact that there has to be some legal framework for what Congress does in counting the electoral votes. And indeed, prior to 1887, it was done by joint rule in Congress. Um, and so I think having some legal framework is just absolutely necessary and doing it by statute is a bit more public and entrenched than doing it merely by a rule. And so then the question is, what should the statute say? And it's absolutely true that the ECA has worked the vast majority of the time. Indeed, in 2021, for 48 states in the District of Columbia, it went through in roughly the ministerial way that we think that should almost always be the case. But if we look at what's happened this year and the trends in American law and politics over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, how much faith do we have that this law won't be pushed past its breaking point next time or as the cycles of politics turn down the road? And I think that you know, recent history suggests that more and more people are failing to live up to the sort of good faith. A statesmanship that Andy is saying that we have to rely on. Now, I agree we have to rely on that, but that doesn't mean that we can't make the legal architecture in place clearer and more enforceable. And that's what I think we should do. Can I, can I weigh in here? Because I, I, I think we're all probably saying much of the same thing. We may have some differences about the description here. And I, you know, I, I do think that there's a process that should work normally, which I've tried to lay out. You know, I, I do worry about people who think we can just lock down every case and therefore have a court or some way in which the law sort of self-executes and, and figure these things out. I think that's trickier than it seems. And I'm not even sure there's an appetite politically to, to come together on both sides. But there are two areas which are you know, somewhat more modest that I think would be helpful. You know, we, we do have this question, I mean, the Constitution doesn't lay out objections and how they're made, and, and the law does. And in some ways, the law sets a low bar for making objections, that, that uh, basically one member of the House and the Senate can raise an objection. And if that happens, then the, the bodies have to split and consider the objection. And we've had that happen now in 2016. We had it happen in 2004 and in 1969. And, and we've had some other cases, 2000 and 2016, where you had a number of House members making an objection, a senator meeting that objection. I do think a higher threshold for that would be better. In fact, arguably, really, unless the whole of the House or the whole of the Senate really objects to something, you, you might say, well, why are we considering an objection here? You know, I think there's some who, there's another question at the end of the day of what the what the um, assumption is at the beginning, whether it's the, the votes will be counted if Congress doesn't object or if Congress has to affirmatively support them. But I think raising that bar and maybe even raising it to, you know, there's a serious objection of the House or the Senate to a, 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 a slate of electors. You know, that would discourage it because you know, Republicans obviously are in the spotlight now, but Democrats did this, you know, the last three presidential wins before this for Republicans in 2004, 2000, 2004, 2016, there were Democratic objections. We probably shouldn't be making those willy-nilly unless, you know, Congress really cares about it. 
The other thing is, and I know the law points in this direction, but we've gotten away from it a bit. I think it would be better to clarify our lockdown that we need to resolve these elections and pick electors and have the meet and then be done with it. The idea, the Hawaii precedent we were talking about that somehow after the fact, we decide that wasn't really the slate of electors. There's somebody else. We have new information. You know, I think that's very dangerous. And and the having having states have to go through and maybe you change the date to which they meet. That's another question. But that they really have to go through their process, get a final result of the election, pick the electors, but then we're done. And once those electors are selected, now that doesn't resolve all questions. You could still have two slates of electors before that date. But I think the idea that we were entertaining some of this based on this Hawaii precedent, which was you know, done, I think, in good faith because it didn't really matter back in the day, I think is is dangerous. So those two areas might limit some of the issues. But again, I think solving all of them by a very specific act is going to be difficult. Well, may you. I just may I just make one point? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that if the four of us got together, we could write a much better statute and a much clearer one than the one that we have. What I worry about is what would happen if you actually, you know, if Congress actually did try to amend this. For the moment, we have consensus, I think, that a vote has to count if it has been certified by the state and there's a single slate of electors, which very much narrows the appropriate objections. What happens, you know, in the process of, of trying to perfect this, what happens if you have a different, you know, somebody decides we should have, Congress can entertain objections if the votes aren't properly certified or if the state election parts company with the with the winner of the popular vote you know a sort of like an underhanded way to try to effectuate the effort that's underway now to move away from the electoral college and adopt kind of a national popular vote it's an it may be an absurd example but my point is that with the imperfection of what we have we have a fairly narrow understanding of what a legitimate objection is and my my fear yet again is that in the process of drafting something in a good faith effort to perfect this in the current climate that we're in, we may end up with something much worse. That's my fear. Yeah, actually brings up a follow-up question I wanted to pitch to both you, Andy, and, and you, Matthew, since you are deeply trained in the law. Let's imagine January 2021 had went differently, and Mike Pence, sitting in his chair, had simply decided, I'm not going to count certain votes. I have the discretion not to do that. What then happens? Is there any way to hold him in his position acting as a person inside the legislative branch somehow accountable through the courts or other means? Or do we just simply have to hope that legislators would rise up and vote and you know disagree and overthrow that result? Start with you, Andy. Yeah, I, I always think with these worst case scenarios, and Matthew may have a different take on this, but as someone who's trained in the law and love practicing law, I also I always think that we're ultimately a, a political community, not a legal one. And if you had a catastrophe like that where the bad behavior got to a to a critical mass where it actually overwhelmed the legal architecture we had, 
which is a long-winded way of someone saying somebody does something crazy. I'd be much more worried about the uh, the popular and political fallout of that than what the law would do about it. I mean, we'd be in uncharted waters. So presumably there would be lawsuits. And as much as the Supreme Court clearly did not want to have anything to do with this election, it might see a national train wreck happening and, and feel like it needed to intervene and reimpose order and try to effectuate the, the statute to the extent it's it's possible to do that. And I think it, it is possible to do that. But you know, the, the bottom line answer is who knows what would have happened. And I think the legal aspects of what would have happened would have been uh, probably, probably considerably, considerably less, less important, important than some of the other fallout. Matthew, you want to take a crack at that? Yeah. Uh, so I, I agree with Andy that ultimately, you know, in these issues and these sorts of extreme crisis scenarios, you know, politics is relevant, of course. And of course, the individual morality of of actor, political actors and, and legal actors. That said, I do think that the underlying legal framework makes a difference. And this the hypothetical gives rise to part of why that's true. Uh, so if Mike Pence had asserted that authority in on January 6th of 2021, it's not entirely clear what would happen next. It's not entirely clear, could there be a court case about it? Brought by whom? Under what law? I think there's you know, significant uncertainty about that. What is the role of Congress in trying to assert its authority over the vice president in that circumstance? Well, so these are questions that have uncertain answers right now. And I think that the law could give more certain answers. Of course, it's not going to be perfect. No law ever is. But that doesn't mean that it can't be better than it is right now to provide less opportunities for exploitation and manipulation. I think that should be our goal is to try to make the law as resilient as possible against these partisan efforts at exploitation to reverse the results of the will of the voters. And so I, I do think that the law as it stands right now is vulnerable to exploitation. And I do think that there's something that's both legally and conceptually possible and politically plausible to, to improve that legal framework. And the reason why I think it's politically plausible is right now, we don't know who is going to be in a position to exploit this next. It may be Republicans, it may be Democrats. And as we've seen over the last several decades, members of Congress from both parties have used this law to raise objections. Now we see a trend that the number of members of Congress who are willing to sign on is, is going up. And I think that that risk, and we don't know how it's going to manifest next time or the time after that, I think makes now the right time to try to reduce those risks by limiting the opportunities for exploitation. Could, could I add one more thing about the vice president? And I, I think, you know, obviously Mike Pence took the right stance and was, was asked not to, but had a very you know, limited stance for what it meant to preside over a joint session of Congress while it's counting electoral votes. For the most part, that means he's not making a lot of decisions that are certainly controversial decisions. And, and even I think some of the specific things, the specific way in which he described the electoral votes was helpful. If you go back to the language he used to sort of clarify that that certain states' uh, certificates were not being considered here. But, you know, I think the problem with a law trying to limit him is, I mean, this institution, someone presiding over Congress isn't a, in a normal circumstance, a, the presider doesn't get to just tell Congress what to do. Congress itself, a majority in either body could could overrule their presiding officer. And, you know, I do think if the vice president were to go off the rails, 
That's where this idea that we're, we're limiting Congress so much, I think, gets us in trouble. Um, and, and Congress would divide. It would not agree to go along with this. They would sort of stop the process. And I think that would be much more of a normal idea of what, what an institution of Congress does in typical times. The danger is on the other side of the ledger, sometimes people have been calling for the vice president to be the, the sort of super enforcer of the electoral conduct to make these decisions that said, well, the law says this, so Congress, we're moving on. I don't think that works either. And so, you know, I think the, the vice president's role is, is going to be limited by the, by the law of the Constitution, but, but also by the fact that the presider over a session or a joint session of Congress is not the ruler of that session. It's really uh, somebody that could be overruled by Congress as well. So more clarity would be good in the law, but I don't think we should make the vice president the enforcer of the electoral conduct against Congress. I don't think that works. Yes, if I may ask you a uh, <clears throat> follow-up, John, since you are PhD in political science and you've studied Congress for, for decades, I mean, do you think that the polarization of the two political parties and the sort of increased competition to win control of all three branches, do you think that ups the odds that we could see more kind of abuse of the Electoral Count Act's ambiguities or just people flat out not following it? Or do you think perhaps we've we've crested? Well, look, in 1876, we had the House in one hand and the Senate in the other hand, and that was actually one of the Key problems there, right? We 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 were deadlocked. Neither side really wanted to give on this until the very last minute when, when the election was resolved. So, if a determined set of parties really thinks they've been wrong and pushes them to the end of the earth, that's that's a very bad situation. You know, I would say universally that's a bad situation. Any country with any system, very close election, both sides dug in. You know, it's hard to know exactly what to do about that. So, I think it it definitely contributes to some of the problems. I mean, some of the hope is again the Electoral Count Act. When it was enacted, wasn't, or at least in these ways we're talking about Congress, wasn't used for, for 80 plus years, you know, some, sometimes because we had, at least later on, a lot of not close elections and machinery was sort of in the background. And, uh, you know, I do think, I hope, I'm hopeful that, you know, as we, in this last election was close, I don't think it was close in the sense of, you know, recountable and the result was in doubt, but if we have some less close elections and we go forward and, and time passes, you know, I think that, that we may get back on a good track, but but close elections with both parties really caring about them is a recipe for, for a lot of conflict. Thank you. All righty. With that, I will have to close the program. I first want to thank the audience out there. Bless you for being with us. And let me also thank our expert panelists, John Fortier, Andy McCarthy, and Matthew Seligman. Thank you all for being with us today. And with that, we conclude this program. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.